And if you want to know any more, just go back to last month and listen to the January podcast. No, don't. There wasn't one. There wasn't one. Just fooling. whatever you listen to podcasts on this is the silent film music podcast with ben modell it's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films i'm ben modell i'm a silent film accompanist historian presenter educator composer etc etc welcome to episode 62 We're recording this in the middle of February 2024, and ideally, you are hearing this shortly thereafter. Uh, We're so glad you're here. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host and co-producer, Kurt Lockhart. Good to be talking to you again, Ben. It's nice to have winter loosening its grip. Uh, A lot of good stuff coming. This is going to be a good year for silent film. Gosh, Gosh, I hope so. There's a lot going on, and... There seem to be new silent film festivals either popping up or in their second or third year uh, happening. And, and, of course, there's Silent Movie Day at the end of September, which is now, it's, I think it's its third year. So anytime you start something the first year, everybody's like, what? Oh, I forgot. that. Does that happen? And then the second year, oh, why? I remember that from last year. And then... The third year, of course, we're doing this, and, yes. and, and everybody—it's established. You can or, hang in three or four years, so yeah. that there's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Order up the snack um, tray and get the friends over. It's the Super yeah. Bowl for silent. Yes, <laughs> yeah, gosh, gosh, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I guess that's the idea. Um, but it's it's uh, it's nice that that these these events are happening around the country. And, and I know you're a naturally modest person, but the other thing I see happening is that. You know, you kind of the inventor of homebrew restoration. Uh, well, and I went first anyway, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that has exploded, especially as uh, the films of 1927 last year and now this year, 1928, are going public domain. And these are silent films that people are entertained by almost without preamble or explanation you just put right. it there's on so much yes yeah, so much good stuff was released in 27 and 28 so um it's made it a little easier for four or five years ed Larusso and i would take turns watching the calendar and <laughs> and and figuring out which one of us was going to kickstart which marion davies picture as it entered the public domain but at this point we're in this other place where having to clear something as far as rights anyhow is is off the menu so and, and I do find that my work with Undercrank Productions is it's not decreasing, let's just put it that way. You know, last year I released five titles and they were all things that had gotten backed up and percolating during the lockdown and everything. And I thought, well, I'm not gonna do that many titles again. It's just it's just too much. And pretty much I've got five or six things <laughs> in the hopper for this year. But I think that it's become a bigger part of what I do. Stay in tuned. addition. We will talk about some of those anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. A little later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, 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 just in terms of what I do, in addition to shows and show prep, this is becoming a bigger part of what my work life is about. The other part of that, I don't know if you've noticed this, Kerr, but it used to be that once a year, 
maybe twice, there would be a little article about how it's important to hang on to your physical media. And uh, streaming is great, but etc., etc. And I think in the last year or so, there's been one every two or three months and in, in a bigger and bigger and more important media outlet. And not just being, uh, oh, it's retro and whatever, but no, really, if you want to be able to see niche stuff, do not count on streaming. Physical media is definitely not going anywhere, and I think everybody gets it now. And that, yes, please go buy yourself a Blu-ray player, because in just in terms of if you're a fan and you want to see a wider variety uh, of things and be able to watch it again a few years later, you need to have the movie in a format you can hold, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's it's now almost 50-50 between, between the two things that, are, that I do. On to the main event, which is really the big part of the audience preservation and cultivation project, the grand, the grand <laughs> well, Ben Modell we're all scheme. Working, well, we're all working on it. I just um, have a, I came up with a name for it. <laughs> but nothing really does more for audience growth than live performance sure. of silent film. So let's talk about some live performances. This straddles things because, of course, one of the big releases of Undercrank in 2023 was the Tom Mix film Sky High. Uh, I yeah. Think I still see fresh reviews of your version, and people are always ecstatic about it, but you got to uh, take another shot at it live. Oh, yeah. In January of 2024, the films that were shown at the Library of Congress's Packard Campus Theater in Culpeper, Virginia, were all films on the National Film Registry. So I got to play a show there, and I... Uh, was talking with Rob Stone about which film to show, and I pitched that we show Sky High. It is a film preserved by the Library of Congress. The Blu-ray is a Library of Congress undercrank release. One of the things I've learned from other programmers, as a programmer, is that the more you, you get something shown, other programmers will notice, oh, that theater is showing this, maybe we should show it also. And it's one of these strategies I I often recommend when people complain that, oh, well, this isn't out on home video. Well, you know what you could do is get it programmed at your local art house, and then that'll generate other showings, ideally. And then maybe someone at Kino or Flickr Alley might take notice of it. So in order to get Tom Mix back out there and raise awareness for silent westerns, because they really don't get shown much, I pitched Sky High, and Rob thought was that was a great idea. They opened it with Buster Keaton's Cops, also on the National Film Registry. But it was great to get to see the Tom Mix feature restored with its color tinting and toning in place up on a really, really big screen in a theater. And for an audience to come out, we had a really nice turnout for the show, I recorded my score on piano, and I think I may have played for the film somewhere, again, on piano, but this is the first time I was going to try to take some of my themes and use them on, on theater organ. Sometimes themes don't really translate well to that format, and sometimes they do, and I, I think it came off okay. And it was fun getting to go on that ride with that film, with the audience, accompanying the film on a theater organ. So our first live performance clip that we'll be listening to is from that performance at the Library of Congress Packard Campus Theater on January 26th. Here's a few minutes from my live score performed on a Walker digital Wurlitzer from Sky High starring Tom Mix. Mm-hmm. 
Live in performance at the Library of Congress, Packard Campus Theater, yours truly accompanying Tom Mix in Sky High from 1922. Just thrilled to see an audience just eat up Tom Mix and how much how much fun he is. I I, I my analogy is he's like Doug Fairbanks on a horse. <laughs> um, that's great. No, it's you true. Know. You, Tom Mix just plays. But I yeah. got a lesson in how silent film plays that I should know. But you mm-hmm. have to be reminded if you don't if you don't make a living performing silent films live. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get to see probably a half dozen a year where I live. They had selected my, the My Nearby Theater, which has the live music, Buster Keaton and Go West. Now, in the panoply of Buster Keaton films, I think a lot of people don't place Go West that high. They feel like they kind of take Buster's word for it. Oh, the stampede was so slow and mm-hmm. it's draggy and the film doesn't. T- well, I don't know. I don't know where Buster saw the film. Yeah, um, but seeing it with an audience, it was a riot. My wife has become a huge Harold Lloyd fan, and she said, "I liked that better than the Lloyd film we just saw." <laughs> I said, "Well, that's pretty impressive because most people don't think of Go West as a Sacco audience film, but it it plays. I mean, the band communicates sure. to the audience. They know what yeah. he's thinking. They know what's going on." And it, yeah, it doesn't really require anything. I mean, the, yes, the music is some kind of a bridge between the audience and the film. There's no question sure. that the audience perf- that the music makes that connection. But once it's made, boy, oh boy, everybody's ready to go to town. Sure, sure. I mean, this is, and this was the at the Weinberg Center, right? Yes, in, in Fre- and, Frederick, and the, Maryland. We have and, a, and fr- original and 1927 Wurlitzer still functioning. And this is the, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the place, and, and Teddy Gibson is, is the uh, organist Teddy there, right? Teddy Gibson, wonderful organist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about, you can't always take Buster's word for it, because he, he always uh, touted uh, a battling butler, which is, I think, <laughs> agreeably the the weakest of all of them, although there, there are certainly fans of it. But, I mean, and, that happens to me a lot where I'll, I'll watch a screener of something, and I've now learned to go, Oh, this will probably come to life with an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of just sort of sitting there, but it'll work in a theater. And and in and, and a picture which some fans may think of as a middle Keaton will just absolutely land in in a theater. Yeah, it, it, it is a, it is a good film and it is well made. And 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 uh, I'm glad it, that it got shown. You're mentioning the importance of a live performed score. Something that I've done. I, I've begun my semester at Wesleyan University, where I teach a course on silent film. For those of you new to the podcast and wondering, what do you? Te- I mean, people always say, "Well, what do you teach?" I'm like, "What do you think?" Uh, I can understand people think I teach music, which I don't, but I accompany everything in my class. So my students are getting 13 class sessions with live accompaniment. I also accompany a silent for one of the classes taught by one of the other professors. So both for my first and my second week, I taught my class, stayed overnight, and the next morning played for the first week I played for Stella Maris at Professor Michael Slowick's class, a film with Mary Pickford, which is newly out in a new restoration on Blu-ray. And uh, it looks fantastic. And, And then... I had my virtual theater organ set up in in their big theater. So 90 first years got to see, and it's a beautiful, it's a huge, huge screen, and the sound system is amazing. 
And so they get the full <laughs> movie palace experience without the decor. But 91st years got to see a Mary Pickford film with live accompaniment. And then the following week, uh, I accompanied a film called Shoes, starring um, uh, starring Mary McLaren and directed by uh, the great Lois Weber. And I, that was for Anuja Jane's, Professor Anuja Jane's uh, class. Uh, I accompanied that on, on piano. So it's another group of, of uh, film students. But... I started doing this because I realized a lot of students don't know much about silent film. And if they've seen it, they may most probably have not seen it with live music. Mm -hmm. But I've learned over the years, because I've played almost every single year for a silent film class taught at NYU. Over years, I would hear from these students who would come to my shows and say, that was our my favorite class session. And I realized it's, it's because the music was not recorded. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started doing this at Wesleyan as a sort of as an infomercial <laughs> for my <laughs> class, because these are often classes that are prerequisite. But also, it's an opportunity for them to get what silent film really is. And mm -hmm. so uh, getting to do these, these films, and I, I'm going to be playing at that class at NYU at the end of the month. It, and I've done this virtually. Uh, during the pandemic, there was a, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it, but there's a, a university out in the Midwest uh, where the film teacher had found me and I think two years in a row I streamed into his classroom even though it's coming through a speaker you're still aware that somebody is playing this music live for you and, and, and it really it makes you pay attention in a different way so it's it's great to give these these young audiences an opportunity to experience silent film with with, with live music yeah even piped in I mean that's of course the excitement of the silent comedy watch party uh, yeah. which is uh, still in there pitching. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, we are still doing it. Never ask an artist if they're still doing anything. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, you didn't think I'd continue, did you? You know, you, nobody ever asked an orthodontist, oh, you're still straightening people's teeth? <laughs> By the time anyone hears this podcast episode, we will have done our 99th episode. But in March, not only is it episode 100, but it's our fourth anniversary show. Wow. And we're... We all have an idea for one particular short. I don't want to say anything yet in case mm -hmm. we have any issues getting it, but ideally it'll happen. We want everyone who has watched the show on and off or dedicated every single episode to watch live uh, on March 17th. Okay. Not Keep just, oh, yeah, not just, oh, because our numbers will go up. So that, you know, we, we as a virtual cinema audience are all in that cinema together live on the 17th of right. March. Keep your eyes peeled on March 17th, what the film is. And yeah. my guess is you might have guests or guests. Well, you know, on the anniversary shows, we all, our guests are usually everybody who you don't see. So Mono will uh, appear, Steve, Steve and his wife Susan. Susan will come on camera. Uh, you'll see Mike and Mar you know, Marlene Weissman and her husband Mike and Crystal Cutty and her her husband James and their daughter Lily. So you just get to see all the people who make the shows happen. It's like a Christmas well episode. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, and we do that. We do that every year. And maybe this year I'll tie my bow tie by hand and not with the clip on. But Ooh. it's 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 not easy. And Special I never, effects. I, I never. I never. I never practice. But <laughs> we we are doing it. And 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 I just did. A, Steve and I just did a live stream for the Slapstick Festival. Uh, that happens every year in uh, Bristol in the UK. And Chris Daniels 
took me up on this is I think the second or third year we've done this, but we live streamed a show directly into a movie theater, the Watershed Cinema in Bristol. But it was also uh, available as a stream; someone could anyone could watch from home. And it's a great proof of concept. You know, in Bristol, they have no trouble finding live musical accompanists to come in. But certainly, if you are in an area of the country or the planet where you want to show a silent film and there are, and there isn't anybody to accompany live, I could stream that into a theater. And I think maybe the, the, the roadblock people have is they have to understand that the tech of how it's going to happen. And it basically, I send you a link and it, I take care of everything. But it's the next best thing to having a show with live musical accompaniment in, if you're in a situation where it cannot happen with a human being. Okay, you got that, programmers? You got a, a live accompanist <laughs> yeah. on tap. All you need is some kind of a computer. A good internet. Yeah. 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 Just, you, all you need good is high-speed internet, and we're, and, and we're set on that. Anyway, we've been talking about comedy, so it seems an opportune time to talk about audience development. Marcel Perez uh, yeah. at the Silent Clowns show. Yeah, yeah. The Silent Clowns film series is now our 26th year, I think. Of Marcel presenting. Perez is practically the uh, either he or Alice Howell or the mascot of Undercrank. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, it's, and I think especially with Marcel Perez, it's because he's such a gifted filmmaker as well as comedian mm -hmm. and uh we've uh, we've uh, wanted to show his films at the series for a long time it was great to do a program of his films and it's actually been a while since i've actually done a marcel perez program probably not since the second dvd came out um, we steve and i did a show i think at the afi silver theater in silver spring maryland so it was it was fun to get to do that and introduce audiences to his uh, brand of, of humor uh, we would always, when Steve and I were doing the Cruel and Unusual Comedy series at <laughs> MoMA over the last 10 years on and off, we would always make sure to include a Perez short or two in the proceedings just to get his face up there and get his comedy up there. And so for me, it was just, and I think Steve for Steve also, it was a great opportunity to share this comedian and filmmaker whose work we so greatly adore with our audiences. At the Silent Clowns, we typically fill the Bruno Walter Auditorium, which is seats 215. So we, we had maybe close to 200 people, most of whom had never heard of or seen a Perez film. It was a good program. We went, went from the earliest surviving of his films, uh, uh, the, the Nearsighted Cyclist, all the way through a film he did in 1921 called Sweet Daddy, which is one of my favorites. It's really interesting that the, the first Marcel Perez disc is a great example of how curation and distribution contributes to film history itself, i.e., because you did the first one, films emerged such that you could do a second one. You didn't know that when you started the project. That, yeah. that you would it's have enough like, to make a second disc. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of you know in line with what, what Steve calls putting his face on the milk carton of silent <laughs> comedy, uh, where there are some comedians whose faces maybe an archivist uh, may be familiar with because they've wound through films or whatever, and suddenly they could go, oh, that's who that is. Or even if they knew, they could say, oh my gosh, he's great. I, I didn't, I, we thought we had the one of his film that, that's around, and this is an, in something that's important. That's between just releasing a disc and getting it reviewed and making sure the packaging looks really slick and professional. Uh, it, it makes an impression. And so, like you said, uh, uh, more of his films would turn up uh, and we were able to do a second disc. And hopefully, 
Hopefully, uh, there, a third volume uh, may happen. There are some other of his films out there. There's one that's at uh, the G- George Eastman Museum, and there's probably more out there. So for me and Steve and anybody who's a, a Marcel Perez fan, something like this is an opportunity to discover somebody who's really funny and has a very specific filmmaking style uh, who you may not have experienced. And I, I think that Perez has a place at the table in the sec- of second-tier comedians like Charlie Chase and Lloyd Hamilton uh, as a, com- a comedian and a comedy creator. But he has and a so, great uh, yeah. dry directing style that yeah. I think puts him in the, the Keaton Bowers line. He's not begging for sympathy. You know, he's mm-hmm. not a Larry Seaman or something like that. It's it's yeah. it's, a, it's a little dry and makes it feel more contemporary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and his his, you know, the specifics of camera placement and cutting and how things are staged and it's uh it's something that sets his work apart from other people and and so our next uh, live performance clip is actually from one of his italian shorts made for the ambrosio company in torino or in turin a film called robinet is loved too much by his wife (laughs) and these are all what we call split reel films that are six or only six or seven minutes long that these uh, comedians in France and England in particular were making where you had one, one, uh, a character and a simple idea and he, he tries a few different things to solve it and then it gets resolved and it's, it's over. And it's, it's, a, it's one of the shorts I show my students uh, the second week of, of class and it went over well <laughs> with my students and it went over well at the Silent Clowns. And uh, I placed my recorder on the floor six feet upstage of the piano and hopefully you can hear the laughs but even if you can't it's still fun to hear to hear so here's a few minutes from my live score uh, on a steinway d piano at the bruno walter auditorium accompanying robinet is loved too much by his wife starring marcel perez Live in performance at the Library for the Performing Arts of the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center. Yours truly accompanying Robinet is too much loved by his wife, starring (laughs) Marcel Perez. (laughs) 
And that's a film we got for the set from the iFilm Museum. Oh, excuse me. It's just iFilm Museum. There's no the. No the. Uh, the yeah. An undercrank release that'll come out in late spring or early summer is a, a set of restored Francis Ford films. And one of the films we got uh, on the set, the main thing, is, is a feature called The Craving, which we got from iFilm Museum. And in finalizing the credits and everything, at least... Wrong and Kainicha, you know, you know, I have had to finish some emails, and she made sure it was clear that it's not the I Film Museum, and is also it used to be spelled E Y E all caps, and now it's just I like your left or right eye. So if you want to refer to that archive, it's I Film Museum. They have a lot of the Robinet shorts, the shorts that Perez made from 1910 to 1915, 1916. We have a, I think a half dozen of them are on on the first uh, disc. And those are the ones that Steve first encountered and got him hooked on Perez and went, gosh, I want to see more of this guy. I so, think uh, uh, Perez yeah. would be interesting for if there are any film teachers who focus on the business side of mm. film history. This is a great example of how uh, lack of branding and mm-hmm. consistent distribution uh, really interfered with Perez's success in the States because you put him in front of an audience and he works. There's nothing foreign or strange. There's no bridge to be made. He just has to, to get in front of that audience. But because the, the distributors never settled on a, a single character name... Uh, or, or he did Or he did He didn't ever become just Charlot or, or yeah, Dickie Yeah, and he kept Doof. changing... Yeah, and he kept he kept changing studios and updating. But I think he was trying to find a character that was ideal for for America, an American audience, having come from Europe himself. He sort of he had a had a career arc like Ernie Kovacs, mm-hmm. you know, just going from one network to another to another to another. And there were fans, and he may be one of those comedians whose popularity and filmmaking sensibilities and persona on screen lands better with today's audiences that. It, he may have, but I, I think that you know he lost a, a leg due to cancer and had to move behind the camera in 1922. Had that not happened, I could see him working for Al Christie or Educational mm-hmm. uh, into the into the 1920s. Hopefully, more of his films will turn up, and we can do another another disc of, of his films. But I mean, I've, I've I did my... mean to make it a commercial, but I would urge anyone no. listening to try out one of the order the one of the Perez discs from Undercrank. You you really can't go wrong. They're just funny. Yeah, they're they're really delightful. We, and uh, yeah, <laughs> we've opened yeah. the door to talk about what's going on with Undercrank, and we'll talk about some yeah. other home video sure. activities. But what's going? Yeah. what's going on? Well, what's going on right now is we're getting ready to release Accidentally Preserved Volume Five. Ah, I've long talked about. Yeah, and this is something that I had intended to release at least a year ago. And just got overwhelmed by trying to finish up the other projects we had in the hopper. Lon Chaney Volume 2, Raymond Griffith, Tom Mix, and the Borzegi Project. It was just too much. These are four films that John Marsalis produced for video and scored. All four of these are uh, new 2K scans of 16mm prints that are in his collection. Although those prints themselves are things that... He had acquired it from, these are the, the Gordon Burkow collection, and I think there was one other collector. John and I had been talking about this one particular film called Lorraine of the Lions, which is a great film, something that anticipates King Kong, where Lorraine is sort of this female Tarzan whose best friend is this large gorilla. Norman Carey goes to the jungle and meets her and the ape and brings them back to the big city 
And, of course, it does not go well. <laughs> and I, how do we market this one film? But it's not really that long, so what do we pair it with? Well, the, and basically, it turned out there there were enough. There are now three features and a short on this two disc set, all of which were films that John had gotten scanned as part of the Library of Congress's silent film project, which was uh, a lot more active a few years ago, where they were working with film collectors who had the only copy in sixteen millimeter of a silent film, borrowing their print scanning it and sending it back now are these giving, um home movie cut downs these well they're home movie editions from the 20s and 30s one of them is slightly abridged a film called the fourth commandment because it survives as a codoscope and the codoscope library run by kodak typically what they would do with feature films is knock a reel out of each of the films or abridge it in some way so the only surviving material on ella cinders with colleen moore is a codoscope. I have one. I know of two or three collectors who have codoscopes, and they're all missing a few scenes. Uh, but the Universal Show at Home Library released films exactly as they were. So, The Reign of the Lions is a Universal picture, as is Hoofbeats of Vengeance, <laughs> and uh, the, which is another feature that's on this on on this set, which stars Rex. King of Wild Horses. Oh, we know him. Yeah, and it's it's a real barn burner of a western, and it's it's fun. But John had produced all four of these and a couple of other other items that didn't make it onto the set for the online version of Cinecon during the pandemic. Uh, Cinecon continued on uh, r- showing films on in an online format, and so these things were done. They were ready to go. And in discussing uh, the different titles, I realized, oh, what we could do with this is this fits the accidentally preserved theme. Mm. And so rather than trying to market this as something that showcases one film, let's put a bunch of these things out because it's exactly what that, that series is about. I <laughs> In preparing to release this and looking for older files from the last release and doing a save as, I realized I had not done one of these since 2018. So it's been a while. That'll be out, I think, sometime in April. These are scores that John Marsalis has composed and recorded using his Kurzweil uh, keyboard that has a lot of orchestral samples on it, which is a keyboard I used to own, and it's a nice sound. The scores are good. And again, these are films that do not survive in 35mm at all. And most probably, John has the only print in his collection. And the, the three features are rounded out by a Senate short called Love at First Flight with Lige Conley and a number of other Senate people. Uh, and there's sequences in color as well. Ooh. And these, the codoscopes of these have the color sequences in color using something called the Dunning process. Go look that up. They survive that way, the way some of the Carol Lombard Senate two-reelers uh, survive. So that'll be out uh, in April. Like I said, the Francis Ford project with the craving and a few other shorts on it will be out. That's the next thing coming in, circling the airport now. <laughs> there are other other projects. There's the Bat, which is ongoing. The restoration work is 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 happening. Uh, we're going to finalize a lot of that, and then I I reminded myself, oh, I have to score that. <laughs> so I've got to record a, a score for that. But we I I believe we are on track to have that finished and ready for Halloween of 2024. And there are a couple of other projects uh, we're hoping to do uh, with Mary Haberstroh, a Tom Tyler project she approached me about doing. And there's certainly a fan base for Tom Tyler, uh, who was in a lot of Westerns in the late 20s and early 30s, and was in serials in the 1930s, and 
again, because silent westerns just I've never been taken either seriously or just had any dedicated efforts put into quality releases. And so there's a couple of those that we have. And there's a couple of other things in another forthcoming episode of this podcast. I'll talk a little bit more about some of the other things that we have in the hopper as it looks more and more like those are actually going to happen. While we're talking about home video, you're appearing simply as a performer in a number of other distributors' projects. Oh, gosh, that's right. So people who are Ben Modell fans should uh, keep their eyes open for uh, the Kino Lorber Vitagraph comedy package. Oh, yeah, yeah. I almost forgot. I I saw something online that it was coming out, and I thought, oh, gosh, that's right. I think I scored a bunch of... Yeah, and I did. (laughs) I scored, I think, uh, six six of the shorts on that set. And and one that is... That's good. One project that is highly anticipated, which is Classic Flix's first batch of silent Our Gang films. I know people have been clamoring for restorations of those films. I know on my first hand-cranked standard eight projector, I had some really ratty-looking... Silent R gang doopy 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 doops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that was really the only way you could see them for the longest time, mm-hmm. uh, unless you had the, there were the Blackhawk prints as well. So yeah, Classic Flicks has been working on these, and uh, the restorations have been happening. I know Katie Pratt's one of the people doing some of the restoration. I've got one scoring screener here that I've got to record. Probably by the time you hear this, it'll be done and on its way. But it is an ongoing project. It is in motion, and as things get restored and scored, when it, whatever their timetable is, David Kawas will we'll get it all finished up and, and out. But it's going to be worth the wait because the films look really amazing. It's good to get to see these shorts as charming and inventive and almost surreal occasionally as they can be back on screen in a, in a quality release. So we have another live performance to listen to, and this is maybe yeah. the most neglected form of silent film in a way, because it, which is paradoxical, because it was probably the most popular genre in its day, which is to say romantic melodrama, contemporary romantic melodrama. This is an example from MGM in 1927. Yeah, it's a film called Man, Woman, and Sin with John Gilbert. And to add another qualifier to that genre that gets overlooked, these are six and seven real pictures. A lot of times the films you think of first and second when you think of silent film are the film school films and the the classics, which are eight, ten reels, twelve reels, but... As a theater owner, you like those films that were six or seven reels because you add a comedy short and a news weekly and a cartoon, and you can get six shows a day in. And when Doug Fairbanks shows up with his 11-reel picture, oh gosh, only four, three or four shows, how many tickets can I actually sell? And yet there is no way that you could refer to this, even though it is of a programmer length. It's not at all a B film. It's that kind of A- minus that MGM did right through uh, the talk era as well. And they had their number one star, John Gilbert. And for those of us who are theater buffs, very exciting Gene Eagles, who has a very short filmography and she's a really yes, important short. really influential actor for that short filmography and yeah. a, a remarkably prolific writer director monta bell despite the sound of the name a, a male yeah but he yeah made a lot of popular movies yeah and, and it's a good film and it, it david sten who has written a book on clara bow that if you don't know it or have it 
get it. And he's been involved for many years, not only writing, but also helping to get films restored or funding restorations, films with baby Peggy and with Clara Bow. And, and uh, this is if something that he was involved with funding because Gene Eagles is in it. And it's a film that sort of is around. There's a couple of 16 millimeter prints that are okay. There's something dreadful around. on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But this is a brand new digital restoration, scanning a 35 millimeter element, and it looks really, really great. And it's, it's as David Sten pointed out in, when he introduced the film at MoMA, this was shown as part of MoMA's annual To Save and Project <laughs> Festival of Preservation and Restoration. As David points out, in the same year that John Gilbert makes Men, Woman, and Sin, he is also in Flesh and the Devil, which is a smoldering, steamy romance with Greta Garbo, and a costume picture, Bartley's Magnificent. And it shows the range that, that he has. And in, in even he's slightly miscast in Man, Woman, and Sin, but he pulls it off very well. And, and again, this is part of what David talks about in his intro, is that Montebell drew on his own experience as a, as a news reporter and a newsboy in Washington, D.C., uh, as part of uh, drawn for the story. And they took a number of location scenes in... Washington, D.C. There's a brief scene where, where John Gilbert and Gene Eagles go to the zoo, and it is the, the zoo in Washington, D.C. And some of the neighborhoods there are shown are, are actually taken in D.C. And of so course, being D.C., it, it looks much the same. I don't know if or when it will get out to fans on disc or on TCM, but it looks great. And you were talking at the top of this this episode uh, about seeing something where it comes to life in the theater. And I watched, I had the same reaction. I got to see a digital screener of the film and I thought, huh, you know, it's interesting. It's well made and Gilbert's very good in it. And it's a pretty basic melodrama plot, very similar, interestingly, to to that of the Fourth Commandment, which is which is on Accidentally Preserved Five, of uh, a young man who falls in love with a woman, and then but there's this connection to his own mother and and all this sort of stuff. But it's 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 quite good, and it and it went over really really well with the audience. I mean, I got a lot of comments from people afterwards about quote unquote my score, and and I think some of that is the film. And I, I also felt this was a, another effort in, that I'm trying to do more when I can is to have themes for the film written out ahead of time. Uh, I can certainly sit down and invent themes during the show and basically recall them the, the next time I need them. But one of my resolutions, as I mentioned in the last episode, is to do a little bit more of that prep. And it certainly helps my own experience of the film so that the next uh, the second and third time I need that theme I don't have to try to concentrate on how did that go while I'm playing something else uh, if I ha I can look up oh and there it is on, on in music notation in front of me it helps me a little bit and I think uh, I maybe I, I played a little bit better so the live performance clip we're about to hear was recorded January 13th, 2024 at the Museum of Modern Art in their Titus II Auditorium as part of their annual To Save and Project, or TSAP, <laughs> uh, <laughs> festival, uh, which was organized this year by Josh Siegel, as well as a number of other staff in the film department, and their show itself was introduced by David Sten. Uh, I'm playing a Steinway S which is a smaller piano, and I've got this close mic'd with my Zoom H2N pointing right into the into the piano. Uh, this is a few minutes uh, from my score for Man, Woman, and Sin, starring John Gilbert. Mm -hmm. 
A few minutes from my live score for Man, Woman, and Sin, starring Gene Eagles and John Gilbert, written and directed by Montebell, screened at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York City. didn't have a lot of silent films this year, but uh, the opening night film was the new restoration of The Black Pirate mm. with Douglas Fairbanks. And if you can get to see this, go. It's unbelievable. The restoration looks amazing because they were able to use camera negative mm. in most cases and not one of those vintage prints where the two pieces of film have been cemented together and the color has faded. Mm. James Layton and a number of other people who worked on uh, the color grading made sure that it matched what two-color Technicolor looked like. And, and it is two-color. It's not two-strip. Eric Grayson, among other people who are experts on early color, have made a point of making sure I, I know two-color is two-color and three-strip is three-strip. Two-color Technicolor is the correct terminology. When you can start with camera negative and then clean that up, mm. It's amazing. And of course, the color registration is just spot on as opposed to what the original prints look like. Alexander Payne introduced that show and he talked about the fact that a good deal of the funding for the, for the restoration came from the Hollywood Foreign Press. I did not know that the Hollywood Foreign Press was involved with funding restorations of films, but apparently they are. And they had come to him and some years back and said, if there's one silent film you would like to see restored, what would it be? And after some thought, he thought of... David Shepard, who was a, a mentor and a friend and who had taught a class that uh, Alexander Payne had taken at UCLA and thought that would be that would be a great film to get restored because it really, really deserves that kind of a, 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 a work uh, being done on it. So I don't know if there are plans to release it on disc or not or if it's going to air on TCM, but if you find out that this newest restoration of Black Pirate with Doug Fairbanks is playing near you, Go. Just when I thought I couldn't like Alexander Payne anymore than I already do. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Guy. He's a big fan. He's a big fan of silent film. I, I, I remember that some of the Chaplin mutuals that were restored about 10 years ago have at the beginning is his fund, uh, restoration funded by Alexander Payne. Mm. Our orchestral score for the adventure with Charlie Chaplin is going to be performed in April by the Union Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Deanna Pham, who I've worked with in Boise. And I pulled up the screener that I had to send uh, ahead with the, has the film with the score on it. And there at the beginning, it says, funded by Alexander Payne. Mm. So <laughs> he's, he is not only a great filmmaker, but he's a big, big fan of silent film. I will be once again attending and accompanying silent films at the Kansas Silent Film Festival which is happening in February 2024, on February 23 and 24. All the screenings are free. That's a great price. And uh, they are held on the campus of Washburn University in White Concert Hall. They've got a great lineup this year. Mostly, not all, but mostly films that are on the National Film Registry. This year, as always, along with yours truly, uh, the films will be accompanied by Jeff Rapsis on piano and Marvin Falwell on organ and Bill Benningfeld on organ 
And uh, this year, Donald Sosen and Alicia Spiegels, and I'm sure I'm getting her name wrong, uh, will be accompanying The Ancient Law as the closing night film. And Donald will be accompanying also on piano the film The Flying Ace. And one of the films, Lilac Time, is being screened with accompaniment by Bill Benningfield and Aaron Wood on harp. Mm, So that'll be different. That's interesting. And uh, yeah. And uh, one of the films they're showing that is not on the National Film Registry uh, is Paths to Paradise with Freeman Griffith, which I'll be presenting and accompanying. And their guest speaker talking about the National Film Registry and film preservation is Katie Pratt, or Catherine Pratt, who did all the restoration work on the Tom Mix films. So even though they're not showing The Big Diamond Robbery or Sky High, these Tom Mix films will uh, probably get mentioned at some point. I'm also going to be at Epsilon Spires up in Brattleboro, and that is April 6th, and I will be accompanying Douglas Fairbanks in The Mark of Zorro at that, and uh, lots of other things, but the best thing to do is to get on my email list and go to silentfilmmusic.com and sign up for my emails, and you can follow me on social media, but don't count on social media's guessing what you want to see. If I send you an email you will get it and you will find out where i am whether it's a live stream or an in-person show or if i've got uh, a home video release happening so definitely get onto my email list while you're doing that please go to where you listen to this podcast and rate and review it and that's not uh, for uh, our ego but it helps people who might like this podcast but don't know it's there helps them find it helps them make the connection Yeah, so help goose that algorithm. It's up to us fans, and even if it's just clicking on something that says, I like this podcast, or go see this show, let's all pitch in and and, and help uh, get get the word out about silent film, uh, because it is so much fun. This has been episode 62 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, composer, presenter, historian, etc., etc. I want to thank my co-host and co-producer, Kurt Lockhart, for keeping, <laughs> keeping, keeping the flame uh, alive and keeping these episodes coming out. And if you want to know any more, just go back to last month and listen to the January podcast. No, don't. No, there wasn't one. There wasn't just one. Just fooling. We, uh, <laughs> because December <laughs> happened and then we had to recover from it during January. But we're glad we're back with another episode and we'll have more stuff to share with you next month in in March, ideally. Uh, again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, here's a recording of the theme for the Silent Film Music Podcast, which I recorded after teaching my first uh, class at Wesleyan on a Kauai Baby Grand Piano at Wesleyan University's Powell Cinema in Middletown, Connecticut. Until next time, I'll see you at the silence. <laughs>